You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. Hey, this is Eric Huberman, and you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Sean Merriman. How you doing? Lights out? I'm good, my man. How you doing? Doing well. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, to dive in, man. I obviously know your story. I've been a fan for a long time, but would love to know, like, how did this all start? How did you even get into football? Like, where did it all begin? So I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland. Yep. And it's funny enough, I was a basketball player first and I started playing basketball, but I was aggressive and I was fouling out every game. So, <laughs> yeah, my coaches were like, you know what? We know something you might not foul out of, right? So I went out, tried out for football and sure enough, I was late to the you know, registration and stuff like that. And I came and all the equipment was gone. <laughs> my coaches asked me, they said, hey, what position do you want to play? I said, coach, it doesn't matter. I just want to hit somebody. And they smiled from ear to ear. And they was like, you know what? We're going to like him. Yeah. So that was kind of like my introduction to football. Yeah, I was a How basketball player. Start? Like, where did that aggression or whatever you would call it like, come from? Why did you want to? Well, it, it, was, it was a couple of things, right? Because the time that I grew up in Prince George's County in Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. in the 90s in Maryland and that were the parts that I grew up in was really bad. I mean, we, we had a really, really bad neighborhood. I think it was like, you know, one of the top five worst you know, cities and communities in the country at the time that where I grew up. So I kind of had this attitude, man, like I was going to fight. You know, that was my attitude. I was scrappy. I was fighting. I was a good looking kid. So I always had to fight for everything. So that kind of, you know, transitioned into football. It was super easy for me to like, okay, I'll go and do this for two hours, let out some aggression, and I feel great. So it felt normal to me to be there. Got it. And how old were you when you went to play basketball and then had that pivot? I was 11. Okay. Um, that, yeah, I was 11 years old and I was tiny, man. I was, you know, I was a tiny, I wasn't as big. I played big, I acted big, but I was tiny. I didn't really start getting my growth spurt and stuff until I was in high school. Nice. And so, yeah, when did that hit where you realized, like, I actually have a knack for this? Was it right away that you're like, I'm good at this? What was the point where you went, this could be a career? Or even before that, where you're just like, I'm one of the best at this? So my freshman year at Frederick Douglass High School in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, I was 5'8", 135 pounds, right? <laughs> and it was like, okay, I knew I wanted to play football, but my body, I just didn't match up to how I wanted to play. Then my sophomore year, I moved up. I was six feet, 170 pounds. So I kind of had, I grew a couple inches. I gained about 30 pounds or close to it. And that's when the growth spurts started to happen. So now my body and mindset and mind frame was, kind of transitioning to football and I finally caught up to everything. Nice. And what point, like what year was it sophomore year then? When did you realize like, I'm a real player? Like I'm not, like this could be something I'm made for. It was my junior year. My junior yeah. year is where I got about two, six, three, two Oh five. And I was playing middle linebacker and wide receiver and tight end at the time. And that's when, well, I take that back. My sophomore year is when I, I kind of got the nickname Mike's out. I mean, I was six feet, 170 pound middle linebacker, but I was hitting, man. I was thumping everybody. Yeah. And I knocked out four kids, four guys in one game. And, <laughs> and that doesn't happen. Joke, I, I knocked out four kids in one game. And then after the game, about 20 students come running up to me and it was like, you know what, you knocked those guys' lights out. And I just played it off like it was supposed to happen. I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, call me lights out. And that Monday, when I got into school and I was walking around, everybody was like, yo, what's up, lights? They were calling me lights for lights yeah. out. 
So that was one of the things that the kind of transition and it, it became more of a brand and, you know, it came like really tied to who I was. It was just like lights out. I'm just this lights out guy. So that's how everything happened. Got it. And then you went to college at, you played at Maryland, right? Yeah. University of Maryland. So did you just want to stay home? Was that the idea? Like you like to be there? Yeah. So my, that- again, my, between my sophomore and junior year in high school, I went to University of Maryland football three-day camp. So they have in the state of Maryland, D.C. and Virginia, they have a three-day camp where all these high school kids, they come and they have, you know, hitting drills, football drills, you know, it's a three-day camp. And when I was walking off of the field as a sophomore going into my junior year, the coaches say, you know what, we're going to offer you a scholarship. And this was verbally as I was walking off, and they officially made the offer my junior year. Now, I'm from Maryland. I grew up 20 minutes from the school, mm-hmm. and I just wanted, for me, it was important for me to stay home because my high school coaches, my friends, my family, everybody wanted to see me play. So to me and how I looked at it, I had, there was no other option. I was going to stay home. Yep. And so fast forward, first round draft pick to the NFL. How did that feel? Like when, what work did you have to put in in college to get there? Like, I really want to know like what Well, went initially, so you know, people don't know, I only started one year in college. I was leading the ACC in sacks coming off of the bench. They put me in a position that I was trying, I was struggling to learn because it was, it was I wasn't used to it. I was playing middle linebacker my whole life. Never pass rush before my life ever until I got to college. So I was learning how to do that. But everybody else around knew that as soon as I got on the field, that I was probably going to be leaving school early. You know, I had one of those talents where I was explosive. You know, I was extremely talented and I worked my butt off. So the talk with an echo was always that you know Sean is going to leave early. And once that started to happen, I, after my junior year, I had a big year, my junior year, and I just put my name into the NFL. So they have a system where you can send your name into the NFL to get drafted, right? And the yeah. scouts and everybody look at you. And once I had that first round grade that came back, when they told me I was probably going to go first round, I was like, you know what? Yeah. This is enough, guys. I'm, I'm yeah. out of here. So that, that was kind of how I made my decision. Nice. And how'd that feel? Like once you got in, like talk to me about like the day of the actual draft, joining the Chargers. Like what was that feeling like? What was that experience like? Well, it's uh, it's funny because I uh, I took a visit to like three or four teams, I believe, before I got drafted. Dallas Cowboys, Redskins, the Lions, and the Chargers. Those were four teams that I visited. And the Dallas Cowboys had the 11th pick, Chargers had the 12th. They both thought that I would go somewhere in the top five or top 10 that I wasn't going to be there uh, by the 11th or 12th pick. So actually, everybody thought I was going to be a Cowboy. My family... During the day of the draft, my family, friends, and coaches, everybody had Dallas Cowboy hats because they just knew that if I slid out of the top 10 that I was going to 11 or 12. <laughs> and when the Dallas Cowboys didn't get me, I got a call from the head coach, Marty Schottenheimer, for the uh, Chargers at the time. And he said, guess what? You're coming. You, you're about to be a San Diego Charger. And I said, you know what? Let's go. I'm ready. That's awesome. And so was that the point that it hit you that you're a real player? Or what, what point did you feel successful? You know, this is something I always love to see different walks of like, where was that pivotal moment where you're like, I'm not working towards something like I've arrived. Not that it's yeah. not more to do. When was that? It, it was after my rookie year. I came onto the scene. I was fortunate enough to win defensive rookie of the year. I also was one of like two players in my rookie class to, to be voted to the Pro Bowl. 
I made all, I was all pro also my first year. And so that kind of put me on the map, right? You had this kid, this guy that was coming out of college, big name, lights out, this and this, whatever, out of University of Maryland, drafted high. But as we know, a lot of people get drafted high and they just don't succeed in the NFL. But my first year is when it kind of put me on the map where it was like, okay, this guy's a real deal. And then I followed up with a few more Pro Bowls and all pros after that, you know, kind of just made a name for myself. No, that's awesome. So talk to me about the lifestyle around the NFL. Like, how is it to be sort of a member of such an exclusive club? Like, not a lot of players, there's a small, small, small percentage of football players that actually get to be in the NFL, let alone Pro Bowl status, etc. Like, what was the surrounding kind of appeal lifestyle? What was the experience like? Well, for one, I, I try to break it down like this for people to look at it from the outside in, right? So you have your best high school players in yeah. all the country, and they go to your big D1 schools, right? And they go and they be successful. Then you have your best D1 players coming out of college. They get drafted into the NFL. Then you got your all pros, your pro bowlers, and things like that. And when I tell you that these guys on that level are freakish, I mean, they're really, really freakish and fast and strong and explosive and big and just phenomenal athletes that people can't even really comprehend. You know, guys that are offensive linemen at 6'8", 360 pounds, 70 pounds, they can still dunk them and windmill the basketball, right? Just freakishly type of players. So when you're put up in that class of eliteness and guys that have a ridiculous work ethic, that's when you really know that you're in the right surroundings of people. And I try to break it down like that and show you how small, what the small percentage it, it is to, to not only make it to the NFL, but then you become elite. So you bring up a point that I got to cover. My business partner loves to tell our team, like natural talent can get you about 25 years old. And then work ethic and true dedication is what will pass all day. You look at athletes like LeBron, et cetera. Like, yes, there was natural ability. There was genetics. There's a lot of things. But then just putting in the time, even Kobe, you know, this is someone that worked hard. Do you see the same thing from your experience in terms of when that caps out, when you actually, it's about the hardest working guy that actually makes it to the top level. Oh, 100%. I actually, you know, off of what you just said, I believe that talent stuff can get you to the top, mm-hmm. but the hard work is going to, what keeps you there. You have a lot of people come in and have a good year. You hear about them for a split second, but you know, you hear about those guys go to one, two, three, four, and five Pro Bowls. These are guys that are consistently just working during the offseason like a madman, working on their craft. If you're a wide receiver, you're catching so many balls and running so many routes. If you're a pass rusher and defensive end and outside linebacker like myself, you're pass rushing drills every day after practice and you never stop working. And that's how you stay there. Your talent will get you there to be number one. But you'll quickly fall out of that number one spot if you don't have the work ethic to match. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. And I've seen it in every walk of life, whether it's being an athlete, being a businessman, et cetera. Like if you put the work in, you'll pass everybody eventually. So kind of next question. You, I realized our, our last guest was Doug Ellen, who created Entourage, and you've got a relationship with him. You've been on an episode. Yeah. Uh, tying that back, I'm curious about sort of the Entourage experience of the NFL, like what the lifestyle side of it. I mean, I know you've dated different celebrities. You've had fun with it. Like what's some fun story or fun experience you had that you still think about, laugh about, et cetera, while you were playing? Well, it's funny with the episode that I was in in Entourage, uh, Doug had called me up and I was in San Diego at the time and he told me that he wanted me to be in the episode of Entourage. Now this episode, this was like in the 2007, 2008 or somewhere around there. This episode was about a team, an NFL team coming to LA. Yeah. And I was going to be their first player that the franchise was going to bring to the team. And one thing that Doug didn't tell me, he forgot to tell me to dress up in my formal gear because I came in like a tight shirt, my muscles all out. I'm looking big in the meeting room and I'm in the meeting room with a bunch of other businessmen looking sharp. 
Yeah. And I was like, you know what? Don't worry about it. It actually kind of fit the scene, and it looked like, okay, this is the player, and the rest of these guys are, you know, future team owners and future execs and stuff like that. So the scene worked out well. But it would have been nice if Doug would have gave me a heads up, and <laughs> so I can just clean up for, you know, clean up for the camera a little bit. Hey, we've been telling him he's got to bring the show back, so hopefully he'll get another try at it. <laughs> oh, dude, I've been saying it. I mean, yeah. you, you have to in, in some capacity. I don't know which capacity, but it was one of the best shows of all time for sure. Well, I agree. And again, back to the lifestyle, any fun stories aside from my, the filming, I mean more your lifestyle on the NFL side, like parties, the experience of being out there. A lot of parties, man, a lot of parties. You know, so the other cool thing with that was I was with CAA, Creative Arts Agency, just about my whole career. So every big CAA party event I was at, and when you get in there, you rub elbows with everybody. And, you know, I just remember one particular night where it was a Super Bowl party in Miami. CAA has their big party down at the Super Bowl. And I just remember sitting over having a couple of drinks, having a good time. And I turn around and I like almost bumped Tom Cruise over, right? And we're sitting over in our section by ourselves, myself, Kevin Hubane, Tom Cruise's mom. And I believe it was uh, my agent at the time, Christian Carino. And I look and I said, hold on, I, did I have too many drinks? I'm sitting there looking at my cup. I'm like, hold on, did I just almost knock over Tom Cruise's now? And it was, it kind of freaked me out. So that was kind of cool at the time. I always love that too. Like I've seen that around like the musicians we work with, the athletes we work with, the actors, et cetera. They all have the same starstruck mentality about each other. So it's like, even right. you're, you're a celebrity, you're on TV all the time. You're literally on shows as well as playing and people know who you are but you bump into Tom Cruise and you get starstruck and vice versa. I'm sure there's a little there. It's, it's fun. Well, you know, the thing is like, for me, I'm trying to play it as cool as possible because it's Tom Cruise, you know, but when he said that he knew who I was, I kind of like dropped my guard down and became fanboy real quick. Right. Well, and that's the exact point. Tom could be sitting there going, Holy shit. It's Sean Merriman. Like it's like, right. Right. As soon as he seen me, he knew who I was right away. And I was like, wow, this is cool as hell. And then I, I dropped everything, became fanboy real quick. That's awesome. And so let's talk a little bit about the transition out of the NFL. I looked up something and it looks like you actually went into joining the WWE in 2014 a little bit, right? I would love yeah. to hear a little bit about that story. And like, did you end up going full in? Did you end up doing a fight? Like, how did that look? Yeah, I did some pay-per-views, man, which was cool. They actually had a big pay-per-view. It was Last Man Standing or something like that. It was one of the, one of the pay-per-views, but it was in San Diego. Yeah. And I always had this idea anyway that when I got done with football that I was you know, the WWE was where I was going to be. At some point in time, I don't know when or where, at the time I think I was at NFL Network. Uh -huh. So I was doing a broadcasting thing on a daily basis, you know, three or four times a week. But I wanted to do the WWE on the side. We just couldn't make that work. But when we did, it was one of the best times because I kind of jumped out the crowd with a bamboo stick and I knocked Chavez right across the back. And the crowd went wild. I did the lights out dance and it was in San Diego. So people went crazy. It was probably one of the greatest experiences I've had because you hear that roar when you come out of the stadium full of 70,000 people. But you get into the arena where WWE and these rest of these superstars and you're like, hold on, man, this is a different feel here. These fans are on another level. So that was super cool for me. That's awesome. And so what brought that on? Like, and I'm curious because obviously what you're doing now, you talk about your childhood and having to be tough, but is that where the root and fighting came from? Or were you a WWE fan growing up? Where did that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was a huge, huge, huge WWE fan. You know, from I would say 90 on. I've been to, I think, six WrestleManias before in my life. Oh, wow. You know, I've probably been to six or seven, maybe eight Monday Night Raws. And I've been to a few SmackDowns. So 
I've always been around it. I've, I've got a chance to work on the WWE Network as well, being a you know more of a commentator and broadcaster. Because for me, that came easy. I know everything that's going on with with them, so it, it was kind of an easy transition. And what caused you, like, instead of like doubling down there and you know making lights out this new brand in the WWE, you moved on to getting into more bare knuckle fighting, other types of fighting. Like, what caused you to move on and to move down that path? Yeah, so I have Lights Out Extreme fighting now with, with yeah. the MMA company. And you know, it was funny. I was actually going to fight at one point in time. And that was something I was going to do. And, and I still do now. I still spar, still to this day, two or three times a week with a lot of the guys from our league. And I get a chance to work out with them because I'll tell anybody, and especially a former athlete that's used to being around a team, the team setting, the first two years are the roughest, man. You don't have the schedule, the regimen. You don't have a coach that's blowing a whistle and telling you you have to be here and your, your whole structure is gone. So when that's in the, in the locker room, obviously, having the camaraderie of the, of the guys. Yeah. So you get out here and what we call like the real world and you don't have that team atmosphere anymore. So for me now to be a co-founder of Lights Out Extreme Fighting, I get the chance to train with our guys, you know, two or three days a week or sometimes more. If a guy's in a fight camp, I'll go and I'll spar certain guys to get them ready for a fight if they're a heavyweight. But it makes me feel good to be back in that team setting again and be able to compete, man, because ultimately when you're an athlete, that's what gets you going. A lot of people think these contracts and the money and all that stuff, that stuff is great. It's a bonus. It's a plus. But when you have it in your heart to compete and that's gone, it's, it's rough. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so do you have a lot of other NFL players reaching out to you, trying to be a part of this? Yes, we have one now, Chris McCain, who's a former Charger. He played also for Miami Dolphins and and Indianapolis Colts. He just finished up his third amateur fight. He's 3-0. And then my goal, man, is really to get some of these guys, these former athletes, especially the ones that careers are cut short right? Because they're still physically gifted. They can go out and compete. You know, there's money in the sport now. And like I said, again, you get back in that team setting, you get back in the locker room, again, around the guys, man, and that part of it is special. Yeah. And we were talking about this before, but we've seen like the UFC has been able to pretty much stay open during, oh, can't ignore the times. We're all under quarantine, et cetera. And what's going on. The UFC found a way to stay open. You guys are obviously, you're, you're not the UFC yet, but you're working on it. And so how has this affected the business? How has this affected you guys fighting? Have you been able to stay fighting as well? Well, it's tough because we actually got the message from the state commission and the governor on the day of our weigh-ins that we had to postpone a fight. And, you know, even though it impacted us financially, even though it kind of put a dagger in, you know, the plans because we were growing really at a really, really rapid pace and being well-known, we uh, we got picked up by Fox Sports back in May. And we were one of the fast growing, if not the fast growing MMA company in the country. And so when that happened, it kind of set us back a little bit. But more importantly, what I, and still to this day, what I think about is the fighters, man. These guys, this is what they do for a living. This is how they make their money. This is, you know, what these guys wake up in the morning to do. They wake up to train and go fight and take care of their family. So for me, I, I'm and being a former athlete, I'm constantly thinking of these guys and, and how they're doing. And I talk to one of the fighters every single day for the past three months. Yeah. And um, just stay in contact with everybody. And, and I feel, even though I'm a co-founder and owner in the league, I still feel like one of them. So it's, it's real easy for me to just kind of connect with them on that level. And I think that's important. I mean, I think, you you know, you've got these people literally are bleeding for the sport. And, right. you know, they've got to know that they're taking care of and being looked out for. And so do you have any fights coming up? Have you guys got some stuff, you know? We're working on it, man. We, you know, feel like we're opening, we're closing. We can have 25% fans. They're going to shut us down. We, you know, so we're, we're trying to pull every angle we possibly can to get these guys back in the cage again. I mean, look, we, we would love to have the type of money that UFC have where they, yeah. they don't need the fans as much. Yeah to happen and, and you know they got the big tv contracts but we're going to be up and running soon i do got a good feeling about that 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, coming from the football background too, like people are dying for sports right now. got entered early, like every, no one's seen sports in months. And, you know, there's a large portion of our country that their entire entertainment is based around the sports teams that they are fans of and, or the fighters, et cetera. And so I think people are looking for it. And I think the good news is I don't think just freezing everything's going to last very long because you can't. And so there's going to be alternatives. There's going to be, you know, you probably could do something with pay-per-view that would may get you enough money to be able to open up. So there's probably going to be opportunities. We've seen it happening with other industries. And I think you're going to see the same thing because frankly, there's a lot of people that also sponsor those sporting events that also help fund them, help finance them. And again, pay to be audience that all have that money still, but don't know where to put it. And they still want that entertainment. So there'll probably be something cool coming down there. Well, if they want to put some money over here, lights out, man, we'll go. But I, I can't wait to get back up and running. No, that's awesome. And so what's your vision for it? Like, where do you want to take this? Where do you want to take lights out? How do you feel it fits into kind of the overall fighting ecosystem? Yeah, so one of the things that I, when I got into the sport, I started training MMA between 2005 and 2006 with Jay Glazer from Fox Sports and Randy Couture. That was my first time being able to spar and work with them and pump bowl and learn hand movements and things like that. So I know that there's an area for former athletes to kind of transition over into the sport. I just know it. There's too many similarities. The correlation is just crazy because you have so many of the same things that you do and movements you do in these other sports that you do in MMA. And being an athlete, a top athlete in another sport, you're not walking into the cage with two left feet. I mean, you're an athlete. You have to now just learn the craft, learn the technique, and spend your time with this, the same thing that, that got you to be number one in your sport and what you do. So that's one of my main goals. That's my, my first thing to get, you know, four or five more guys to transition in and, and see if they like the sport. Obviously, it's not for everybody. But two, I want people to be able to capture this because, yes, you know, there's a few MMA leagues, but there's something different about Lights Out. We have a fan base that's just crazy about what we do and the fights that we put on. And once you come to one of the Lights Out fights for the first time, you automatically know that you're in a different place. And so perfect follow-up question, what can people do to help you? You know, the listeners, et cetera, like, are you looking for fans? How can myself included, how can people help you get this going? Well, for one, you know, I put a couple of things in place as far as, you know, some production and capture some of these moments of these players transition over. So that's that's coming soon once we get up and going again. But just keep supporting us. Go to Lights Out XL on Instagram and Twitter and follow us and, you know, comment and just repost us and keep us out there, man. These guys are modern day warriors. And, that, you know, they deserve all the credit in the world. And last question for you. What's one piece of advice to anyone out there, whether it's an athlete, a musician, an entrepreneur, trying to grind out to make their dream a reality? What's one tip, one piece of advice you'd have for anyone pursuing that? You know that great things aren't built in a day, man. You know, if you want something great, it's not going to happen overnight. And when it doesn't happen overnight, don't get discouraged because you go, there's so many roadblocks and so many different things you're going to have to do with it. People get derailed all the time because of things happening, whether it's family and, you know, big tragic things happen in their life. But just try to stay as focused as possible and keep going because at the end of the day, that's what you want. You want to get to the light at the end of that tunnel. Amen. Perfect advice. Well, thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for me on Hawk Talk. You got it, brother. Thanks for having me. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. 
To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.